0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxane Panchassi. My guests in this episode are Sébastien Philippe and Thomas Dastrius, the authors of Toxique, Enquête sur les essais nucléaires français en Polynesie. Toxic, an investigation of French nuclear testing in Polynesia. And that's my English translation of the French title, but um, as I understand it, an English translation is in the works. The book also has uh, an accompanying website called the Mororoa Files that is available in French and in English with amazing images and documents and all sorts of supplementary materials. And I will be putting the link to that website in the post for this podcast episode. Welcome, Sébastien and Thomas.
1: Hi, thank you for having us. Hello, Oh,
0: I should have said also, the book was published by Presse Universitaire de France in 2021. And Disclose is also part of the publishing project. Is that right, Thomas?
2: Yeah, exactly. So Disclose is a a non-profit media that actually produce um, the journalistic part, let's say, of the investigation. Mm -hmm. And it was the co-publisher for the book, along with Presse Universitaire de France.
0: So I wonder if we could start by having each one of you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves, where you're located, and perhaps the broader scope of the work you do as individuals before collaborating on this project together. Sebastian, do you want to start us out?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a researcher and lecturer um, at Princeton University. I'm with the Programme on Science and Global Security in the School of Public and International Affairs. That's a group uh, of scientists and engineers working at the intersection of science, technology and policy in uh, and, and Princeton's Policy School. And, and most of my uh, research really focused on uh, nuclear weapons issues and issues of technologies and, and international security.
0: And
2: Thomas? Uh, so um, I'm a freelance investigative journalist. And uh, I'm based in Paris. Most of my work basically is dedicated to investigative journalism. That's what I do. I usually, and most of my time, worked on migration issues. That's something that I have covered like both mm. in Africa, but also in Europe for the past eight years. And also working also on defense issues and, and surveillance.
0: So the book is focused on uh, the program of French nuclear bomb detonations in what is colonially referred to as French Polynesia. A total of 193 atmospheric and underground after 1975, detonations from 1966 to 1996, so ranging from the Fifth Republic presidencies of de Gaulle to Chirac, and working with a whole team of researchers, so the two of you sort of spearheaded this investigation into the health and environmental impacts of these weapons experiments in the region. And the results are incredible, thank you, um, and so important to share with a, a wider readership and public in the ways that you have. So, yeah, how did you, the two of you come together to, to work on this project?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting uh, story. And, and in fact, it begins with uh, with our colleagues, uh, you know, both at Disclose, but um, at Interpret, um, which is a, a group of um, architects and, and scholar working on environmental crime and justice mm-hmm. issues. And uh, Nabi Lamet, who is a uh, leading interpret, was the one who, uh, you know, partly started this project when, when after a visit in Polynesia to present his work, the work he was doing on, on other topics in the Pacific, essentially met with, with a member of civil society there, Bruno Barrio, uh, who has been a long mm. uh, anti-nuclear activist and also kind of has joined the Polynesian government there at some point. But essentially, he gave him a, an archive that uh, civil society uh, had obtained for court battles of French declassified documents. Mm. Documents that were declassified in 2013 and had not been uh, really made public uh, nor significantly exploited by by researchers. And uh, Nabil, uh, you know, had had this archive... Barrio died. Right. They wanted to do something together. They couldn't, and I will really struggle with with and, and and I and I I hope I'll have the opportunity to talk more about the documents and their history and so on. But you know the the, the point is um, they were very technical and very dry, mm. and uh, it took him a while to to find someone who uh, both speak you know French and could do the technical analysis, and uh, that's how he found me essentially. Uh, because I'm a scientist and engineer by training, and uh, I've also experienced with nuclear, nuclear weapons. I did work in the French government, um, so
0: you were made for this
1: project. <laughs> I was kind of made for this project in part, yes. Yeah. And, and by the time I joined, you know, that's when you know I started going through those documents, and 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 Thomas can tell is part of the story. But that's that's uh, uh, his colleague disclosed thought he would be uh, uh, an amazing partner, and and and. And journalist for this project, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I'm so glad because uh, it clicked so well between us.
0: Thomas, how did you come into the project?
1: I think w- one of the key
2: aspects was to have something at the intersection between like f- um, forensic architecture, so to speak, like s- scholar, you know, having a very si- rigorous scientific research mm-hmm. on on those testing, but also having like journa- what some journalism down especially mm-hmm. for to have significant impact on civil society in Polynesia, So my, my my friend and colleagues I disclose actually at the time approached me with this mass of documents because Sébastien said they're very dry, and they are. So imagine for someone who does not have a nuclear background, they are more <laughs> than dry. They are impossible to understand. <laughs> and so they say, because I don't know why, to be honest, I'm very, I'm very like obsessed, so probably, and i love to look at weird old documents. So <laughs> maybe that's why, and, and basically the idea was to work something out of, of this collaboration and something that can work in, so to speak, the, the three sphere we are working on, journalism uh, nuclear, nuclear physics, and and also uh, visual, vi- visual art, visual like creation and so on. Mm-hmm.
0: The,
2: the difficulty with this investigation is what do you do with this mass of information because there's mm. a lot in those documents. So part of the job was to investigate on some of the key aspects, but also investigate how to tell a story that's very old that has been told for some part have been told as Sebastian said, not everything for sure. The funny story is actually Sebastian and I seen each other once or twice? Once. Once, yeah. Yeah, once. We worked from a distance for like oh. the past two years. So it's funny. Sebastian is really my love my love work buddy, right? We <laughs> call each other like during the during the, the final stage of the books, yeah, probably ten times a day. So
1: Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we wrote we wrote a book over the internet. I mean, you know, and, and on signal essentially, yes, together. Amazing. Meeting in person.
0: Wait, so did the collaboration start? It was pre pandemic, right?
2: It was in February twenty twenty. So it was one month before the pandemic.
0: Oh. And at that
2: time we were supposed to meet in person in uh in the US to have some kind of kickoff meeting, you know? Yeah. But Poof! Pandemic closed. Actually, it was pandemic was a a blessing for me because I had to do a lot of reading. So basically, only days in my room with Sebastian sending me more stuff to read every day. So,
0: I wonder if we could go back, maybe just for those listeners who aren't as familiar with the French nuclear weapons program and these detonations first in North Africa in, in Algeria in the Sahara and then in. The Pacific, and just give people, you know, a bit of background to like what were the French doing, blowing up bombs in Polynesia. Like, how how did we get to the history that you're, and to the story that that you all are uncovering aspects of in this project? Sebastian, do you want to kind of give us the quick background to before we get to the
1: project? Yeah, no, of course. Uh, France launched a nuclear weapons program. In, in the fifties, uh, this was a clandestine program for a long time, and it was finally embraced by the French governments towards the end of the Fourth Republic, uh, and and later, as soon as the gold came back uh, in fifty eight, as part of this program, once it became kind of more recognized internally and and uh, developed uh, and mature, uh, the French government decided. And you definitely probably know more the part of the story because uh, I, I still have to learn uh, what happened in Algeria. Uh, but the French government started uh, testing nuclear weapon and it tested in first, its first nuclear weapon in 1960 in Algeria. So Algeria was still part of the French colonial empire at the time. So, you know, France tested weapons. They're a very crude uh, design at first um under international pressure, uh moved its testing in Algeria underground. And at that time uh you know the, the Algerian War of Independence uh came to its end and, and, and in the Evian Accord uh Algeria gave France the right to continue developing its weapons for a few years but then essentially asked France to to move its nuclear testing ground elsewhere. At that time uh France was You know, seeking to build more powerful nuclear weapons that it had built so far, so-called H-bomb or thermonuclear weapons. So weapons that can unleash uh, energies, you know, a thousand times more than uh, the bomb that exploded on on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example. Mm. And I was looking for a test ground where... um, where it could um, do that and 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 had already kind of surveyed the entirety of its national let's say metropolitan territory but also all the overseas territories had started the survey well before that but eventually decided that polynesia was the place to go to move that testing program part of this was uh, that the us and the uk had tested uh, in the area, mm-hmm. so there was kind of ex- experience with you know how international community responded to to those tests uh, before. Part of it was uh, that the French military, in particular, uh, and the Atomic Energy Agency, which was you know the, the kind of two key institutions in France who, who organized the testing. Their point was that you know the popul they considered Polynesia as 100 more than 100 um, islands and atolls in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They considered this a pretty much empty place with a low population Mm -hmm. density, which of course, you know, wasn't empty. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so decided that this was uh, a place where they could uh, restart atmospheric testing uh, after the rest of the world decided to stop atmospheric testing. Well, when I said the rest of the world, the US, UK and, and Russia, Mm-hmm. So France decided to go back there with the idea that if it if there was too much pushback internationally, they could perhaps find another solution or go underground again. So you know, addressing this international community concern, but also doing the testing there because uh, the nuclear weapons program at the time didn't have the you know the political backup or capital it has today mm. in France. Like you know, uh, not, not all citizens really were proponent of that program, uh, and thought that it was necessary to to continue testing and developing more powerful weapons, and so it was a way of kind of mm-hmm. doing this far away from home.
0: I guess, I guess I do. I want to come back to what we've already talked about a little, which are the documents, because you did the project did begin with this cache of of papers and and different types of documents, and yeah, if you could speak both of you to, you know, what is the nature of these archives that you are revealing, I guess, in a certain way to people, you know, that that hadn't been well known or publicized before. And then what are the other types of materials and sources that came into the project? I mean, everything from visuals to interviews that you conducted on site Thomas, do you want to start with that?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's important to to so we say those documents, right? And mm. what do, documents actually? So th- these are two hundred and thirty three documents coming from the French army, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them are, you know, at the time of the testing, some of the institutions that were like organizing the test or the the collection, for instance, of uh, biological samples to analyze, etc., were partly military, partly also engineer from the Energic Atomic Committee. So basically, uh, some of the documents come from either one of those two institutions. Right. And those documents actually have a history before we use those, is like there were again, so to speak, after a long legal battles by veteran and by civil society association in Polynesia, which name is at all. Mm. And basically what they did at the time is they asked after a series of legal challenges, they finally asked for the French state to disclose some of those documents that will help. Examine for the, the contamination that some of the military, but also some of the workers at Moroa at the time. So, Moroa was the main tasting site, it's an atoll in the mm. middle of the Pacific Ocean. So, th- those documents came from that. And for me, uh, if I speak from um, from my bit of work, the, the story, uh, because you mentioned additional sources, the story was the, the challenge was how to tell those documents. So, I looked at first. Uh, and I speak to a historian, so I'm sure you, you will be interested in, in that. <laughs> Maybe have the same the same way of doing. I open a huge Excel sheet and basically write down every bit of storytelling that I can use, whether it's characters, people named in the documents, mm. places that I can go to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then what I did is I, I looked for people that can tell me this story. Military, uh, that are in France, that I interviewed probably more than 40 of those. I don't have the exact number in my head. Oh, yes. Yeah. And then I interviewed also probably more than 20 person during a field trip to Polynesia mm-hmm. uh, both in the Gambier Islands uh, in Mangareva which is the main island of this archipelago and and also in Papeete. The the documents were the key of our work, right? It was the the the, the first material that Sebastian used and that was the project actually to to base a lot of our works on those. My job in France was also to kind of see if we can gain other documents, r- reports from the time to enlighten a bit the, this first archive. So that was my job, and that was going through sources to or uh, the people at Observatoire des Armes, which is a French association in Lyon, that for years, actually, to collect uh, bits and reports and photographs and everything from the French military and the French Polynesian testing at the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now I passed
1: the... the...
0: <laughs> yeah, pass the mic.
1: <laughs> yes. I was listening to Thomas and I was having, you know, flashback, uh, <laughs> for, you know, conversation at the time. So, um, you know, Thomas, Thomas said that the, that the documents were declassified a, part of court, a spot of court battles and you know we had uh, both different ways of you know dealing with them I, I created this also kind of I don't know gigantic network of co- connecting each document to each other and understanding uh, trying to have a sense of what had been declassified and what was still classified, mm-hmm. and uh, what could be in the document that were partially uh, you know they classify where documents were missing and so on and so this is when we realized that you know of course we had like just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. yeah uh, but it was it was super interesting and and um, going through that you know what happened to me at some point uh, I, I had some knowledge uh, a little bit about uh, the studies that the French government had done on the legacy and the impact of nuclear testing in in Polynesia studies that, uh, became the scientific basis for financial compensation in France mm-hmm. uh, under the law, law called the One Moreham, starting in 2010. Mm-hmm. And something that I realized at a, I don't know, one exactly, it was kind of towards the beginning, is that those documents were the primary source on which those those French government studies uh, had been based. Mm. But those studies never cited any of those documents, huh. uh, and so that was an interesting thing. Is you know, and as a scientist and researcher, you know, you can always always you know, it's like pulling you know, pulling references or you know, starting to do a little bit of peer reviewing work. So I was going back to their calculations of you know how they computed the impact on the local populations that were exposed by the fallout from the atmospheric test and. By doing this, I was finding the original data and the original documents. And then as I was going through, then I started realizing, oh, I mean, there was some really amazing assumptions that were made sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, I would find that, you know... (laughs) Two data points, there were two data points, in the same documents, one was used, the other was not used, and things like that. so it gave a new flavor also to those documents and I think that speaks to the interdisciplinary you know aspect of this project is yeah. the same set of source we kind of both brought very really two different ways of looking at them and 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 crossing this was was amazing because then you know thomas you know, in our conversation, it could fuel my interest in something. Or sometimes like I was telling him, you know, oh, look, this is how I was calculating the impact after this test. And uh, it seems that they must have written another report. And I have no way to, it's not on publicly available. It's not on the internet. Right. And uh, as a researcher, there's no way you can do this. Or have access to it, and, and, and as a journalist, was the beauty of working with Thomas was, well, he has access to source and now he finds sources, and sources sometimes were willing to share uh, documents and information, and right. we got access to those, so it was a way of of expanding our ability to yeah to understand and shed light on yeah sixty plus years of how the French state had. Approach the monitoring of the environmental contamination in Polynesia, on the contamination of the biosphere, on how they, you know, try to assess population exposure, and how they used all of this to uh, today uh, mm-hmm. decide who is who, who or who is you know, who is and who is not essentially uh, capable of asking for compensation from the state.
0: I guess I want to ask, like, how much we can trust the documents, right? So sometimes it seems like what you're uncovering and and disclosing is that, you know, that there are these internal contradictions. And then other times, of course, the documents are all we have to know. And one of the things that I find incredibly fascinating is that tension between the underestimation that is built on top of them, and whether or not, there's also an underestimation of the impact and the harm caused by these bombs and detonations, That whether that's internal to the documents. How do you, how do you work with that aspect of it, the sort of truth of them versus the ways in which they, they might be misleading and then the reports based on them and other things might also be misleading?
1: Um it's a really good question and and uh there's two ways of you know I thought about this of course it it was amazing to discover that you know the entire Like, let's say, the entire legal system today to compensate uh, victims of nuclear testing in France is based on a paper study, you know, essentially. Mm -hmm. But that's a paper study. But those are are documents that clearly explain, you know, well, not all the details of the measurements they were taking, but they are really data rich. I mean, there's like a lot of things in them. And they were stamped secret. They're a stamp secret in the sense that they were not meant to be shared, mm. you know. And in fact, Thomas can, you know, to, to tell more about this also. I mean, he found, you know, when he was reading them also, you know, places where they would say, oh, we cannot, you know, make this public, otherwise we're going to get in trouble or, you know, right. this is going to cause uh, uproar and so on. But the other thing that I've done in this project that was very interesting to me is I reconstructed the fallout from this test, Right. Independently, so I you know, on top of doing this peer reviewing work of the government studies and looking if there were you know issues and mistakes in them or you know or sometimes validating whatever they were doing. What I've done is I I use kind of modern particle atmospheric transport codes that we call them. Essentially, you know, using uh, mer- meteorological data sets from how was the weather at the time and modeling radioactive clouds after an explosions and looking at where the radioactive particles of the mushroom clouds would go i kind of drew these maps of the fallouts and compare them to what were the fallouts and you know the measurements inside the documents mm. and they were you know for the most part on the same order of you know magnitude essentially of 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 the results, So it was a way to kind of cross-validate the data that was in the documents right. with kind of this independent way of reconstructing the test, which was also helpful for us because it also helped us, you know, assess in a few cases that there had been exposure of population in place where the government didn't do and carry, did not carry any measurements. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some population were exposed, we know. Very likely because, you know, other places were exposed at the same time and if you reproduce the trajectory of a cloud then you find that everybody was exposed essentially. Yeah.
0: Thomas, do you have things, thoughts on this? Yeah. Truth of the document's question
1: <laughs> I think mainly what
2: we do as journalists and as what we try to do like on a day to day basis is actually to to go against the the mechanism of communica- of public communication right that yeah. whether it's government agency military et cetera et cetera. And I think for this investigation, what what we try to do, and, and I hope I am sure, actually, the Sébastien group with me, I hope, <laughs> uh, is actually we try to flip the narrative, right? Which, and we try to flip the narrative on, on on this issue, on two main, let's say, line. And we'll, I come back to the data because those two lines are around the data. Mm. What was the narrative around the French nuclear testing in the Polynesia? It was first that. There was not a lot of contamination. That Polynesia was contaminated, sure, like the French states say so, but that the contamination was not so important that we should care about that. Mm. That was the first narrative that was very strong. Then the third one, a third narrative, but I'm not going to go into that because it's above the books. It's about the use of those nuclear. Bombed at the time and how tactical they were and how mm-hmm. useful they were for the French mm-hmm. defense. But probably that's a question you're still, you're more looking into than myself. And the second narrative that was introducing those nuclear testing as something, you know, very rational, very organized, as you know, it was squared like, the military was super organized, the testing were organized, everything was super clear, you know, like, <laughs> and everything worked perfectly fine. And it worked perfectly fine, because we're professional, you know, French military has this, as any army, I'm supposed, like, has this narrative of being super, super, like, you know, clear and precise, mm-hmm. as a clear shot. And so, Coming to the data, the first narrative was using their own data. The one they use actually to, as Sebastian said, evaluate the compensation for the victims and use their data. And you said, no, you are wrong. There's stuff in your data that at the time you did that are not scientifically possible. And by, and by saying so, we were able also to open another gate you know, for the stories was have the, the data that you use for compensation all validated. And mm-hmm. we discovered they were never validated by anyone because they claimed that international authorities validate the data and it's wrong. We have the reports. But so that was the first narrative that we tried to flip. Mm-hmm. And the second one coming to the, let's say, organization of the testing. So basically the French army said, we have this data, are, it's, it's a great data. At the time we had <laughs> top, you know, top-notch instrument to measure radioactivity and stuff like that. But when you look at the doc, it's not true. Right. And so I think that's why the, the two those two points seems to be sometimes contradictory because of course if you say that your data your base your study on is not or not super clear then what does it say about your study right but I think on the contrary that's why actually the thing toxic had such a great impact in Polynesian society because you cannot escape right. the criticism because on either side there are some criticism that should be made scientifically. And also like for civil society.
0: I just keep thinking about how exciting this must have been as it was happening, you know, this project to be able to, I mean, as terrible as some of the the things that you're looking at are, that the that the project itself is, there's a kind of excitement to being able to discover some of these things, but then also to be able to make this impact yourself. So we'll, we'll come back to that. I just wanted to to follow up on this question of, you know, we've talked about data and documents and all these things. And I want to talk about people now. You know, earlier, I think it was, Sébastien, I think you were the one who said, you know, it wasn't empty. Even when I think about the visuals, the most famous visuals, I mean, they're always of the clouds. I mean, licorne always comes to mind, like people use it for everything. People even use it to illustrate, like different tests that weren't Nikon, so like um, that that the kind of spectacular clouds are what you see, and you, you rarely see people uh, depicted in images of these detonations. So let's talk about how many people, you know, people indigenous to the region. And then you know the massive influx over time from 1966 to 1996, military personnel, scientific personnel, all the people it takes to to set up and to manage the massive infrastructure that these uh, detonations required. So, how many people are we talking about? Because I don't think people always understand or know how many people were involved and affected by these these so-called tests.
1: As, as, as part of his project, actually, we, we wanted to know how many people were living on, on every single of those islands, you know, mm. and uh, so, and Toma can tell part of the story, but I told him we have to go and get the census data, uh, and there's a whole story of trying to get the census data, going to Polynesia, the Polynesian government's saying, oh, Uh, we don't have it, it's in France. Uh, A French census saying, we don't have it, it's in Polynesia. Of course. And then eventually it is in France and Thomas managed to get it. But um, 100,000 or so people were living at the time of the atmospheric test. So Polynesian um, kind of local inhabitants. And as the test site infrastructure ramped up, uh, essentially that population doubled. So it would be more or less, you know, 100,000 Inhabitants, 100,000 kind of civilian and military personnel,
0: And that sort of, that's a number for the, let's say, the late 1960s that changes? Or are you sort of thinking an average over the time? Uh, So, sorry.
2: Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Sorry, I keep coming back to the fact that we want to flip the narrative on the French military being no, organized it's good. because they do not have actually a clear census. It's not; uh, it's an, only an estimation. It's it's difficult to say because about the time uh, Polynesia, as Sebastian said, we had the we had the census, and that was a clear example of Sebastian asking me to have some sources on the ground. So that. Was a clear <laughs> <laughs> of interdisciplinary collaboration right there. I think what we got from the public sources that are available is I think there's there's roughly, I think 100, I don't remember, I think it's hundreds of thousands of military people on the ground all over the time of the nuclear testing. But that that again, again you do not have in, in that number the Polynesian, for instance, worker uh, going mm-hmm. from Bapete to, to for for the time of the testings. And that's a population that's complicated also to to have an estimation because most of the companies that were you know booming at the time of the test, they do not exist anymore. So it's very difficult to know actually how many people work. That's actually an issue uh, for, for, for the Polynesian government itself.
0: And so we talk about people, and then when we talk about the impact on people, I mean, a big part of this investigation is the immediate but then longer term health impact on people who are exposed and then you know (laughs) cross-generational impact of the exposure so I know it's impossible to summarize that because it's so complicated but can you give us some of the kind of key things that we should keep in mind in terms of the health impact over time in the region
1: yeah absolutely I mean so just to 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 give this, the listeners you know an idea i mean they there are essentially f- you know four pathways to which um you become exposed to radioactivity after fallouts two of them considered external exposure so it's when the, the the fallout brings the radioactive particles over where you are so you are essentially the cloud passes over you then as the cloud passes uh, over where you are, it's also depositing uh, radioactive particle on the ground and those stays there and, and they decay with time. They emit uh, radiation and those represent a significant portion of the exposure. And the other uh, pathways are uh, what we call internal contamination, uh, where you're breathing the particles when the, clouds, the cloud uh, passes by. Uh, but also when you're ingesting food that has been contaminated by the fallout, mm-hmm. and this is where the you know the impact on the workers and the impact on local population is going to differ. There were different uh, you know exposure limits for them. Uh, they had uh, obviously workers and military and 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 the engineers from the Atomic Energy Agency sometimes had protections. They were you know they had uh, means and ways to measure radioactivity in the environment where they were working. Which was not the case for the population, uh, but one key issue for the population was uh, well, their their entire the entire you know biosphere would get contaminated, uh, all their sources of food mm-hmm. would be contaminated, and uh, their water would be contaminated because one of the primary sources of water, especially in the atolls that were near the test sites, uh, was c- collecting rainwater. Right, uh, and so it happened several times where a radioactive cloud from the test would pass over the island at the same time where rain would start. Mm. And so rain would wash out the cloud in the atmosphere and, you know, essentially collect the radioactive particles, falls down to the roof of the houses, trickle down and uh, get collected into cisterns. And then um, families would drink that water. The population where and some part, they they, they were not the ones who sometimes did receive the most acute exposure to radiation Mm -hmm. in this entire period, but um, they were the ones who were chronically exposed to radioactivity, radiation. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes in acute manners, I mean, uh, uh, after there is at least, you know, the, the atmospheric tests that took part between 66 and 74, there's really a bunch of them where fallouts were more significant than others, and and you know we found in the document, of course, and, and one of them was kind of a key example here of what happened. We found you know a survey of uh, so, uh, scientists, CIA scientists, going to this village on on atoll of on the atoll of Terea, surveying the, the family cisterns all over the the village and tracking down the name of children who were under seven years old. And in which cistern they were drinking, and the amount of contamination, and the cistern, and how much fission product they are that ingested, uh, how much iodine one thirty one was a key mm-hmm. fission product that uh, fixed on the thyroid, and, and that is a very uh, sensitive organ. <laughs> and my, my my bottom line here is that uh, yeah, there was there was wide population exposure definitely, mm-hmm. but uh, really the communities were. Perhaps the the least protected were the ones who were living closest to the test site. Um, And they were, I suppose, the most.
0: This is something that, it's it's a strange feeling to interview people who work on something that I have such an investment in. Um, This is something that I talk about with people sometimes, you know, who say, they were so naive, the French military and state, about the impact of radiation. And that's what accounts for you know, the negligence that it was incidental or that they didn't know that radiation could have these harmful effects. So I guess I want one or both of you to respond to that. I'm not saying that, but <laughs> but to respond to that, that idea that, especially in the early years of this program, that what accounts for the exposure of the population uh, was just a lack of awareness of the potential harms of of radiation from these from
2: these explosions i don't think so to be honest probably sebastian would have the same answer but like slightly more precise on the scientific terms mm-hmm. i think they knew and i'm sure they knew yeah you know there there's in the archive not the, not in the main archive but all other documents that we were able to to consult basically and those documents you saw that basically the dose limits uh for the population for instance during their talks uh, among, you know, military and doctors, et cetera, et cetera, were mainly a political talk, uh, to which doors it is acceptable to expose people and also which harm these limits, in case you reach a limit, right? You have to evacuate the person, you have Mm -hmm. to change the pattern of the testing which consequences those those limits can have on the making of the testings? That mm-hmm. was the way the military thought. I I do think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- I think they they knew for the most part, and I just think they do not care so much. That's the I think that's what you got basically yeah. a lot from the testing. It's not to say that they knew precisely what right. will happen. You know, they 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 could not like assert like there's going to be they do not they they did not do this very cynical uh calcul like they did not say look there's going to be x number of like disease and radio radio disease etc and we can do that because it's acceptable i think they knew it was there was some risk for sure i don't think they can say the contrary Mm. i don't know what you think sebastian
1: no i agree it's very clear by that time in the 60s that you know Dangers of, of ingesting uh, fission products and exposure to radioactive fallout is well known, and in part, you know, the, the French military does try to avoid as much as it felt comfortable with to expose, you know, local population. There is a case of an of an atoll that was um, where where population were prevented to leave. You know, uh, it was not a settlement that was permanent, but but where where the local population would come and farm. Uh, or fish, and, uh, you know, they prevented them from from, uh, using and exploiting those resources. Uh, So there was knowledge of this. Uh, We have to remember that this comes after the U.S. and U.K. tested uh, in the Pacific, Mm -hmm. and after very well-known cases of exposure to, you know, populations, whether in the Marshall Islands. Or even passing by, you know, the fishing fishing vessels and so on. Uh, and so they, they are very well aware of of the risk. Uh, they are aware even more so because you know, as I, as I mentioned briefly previously, the U.S., U.K., and Russia accept to stop atmospheric testing. And one of those key reasons was public outcry against uh, what what societies started to see as, uh, you know, massive pollutions and exposure of, of the world populations. Mm-hmm. So they knew, yeah.
2: And, you know, it, it, w- w- about about your question, there's one, one quote that I recall from talking to a senior member of a Ministry of Defense cabinet back mm-hmm. in the 90s that he that was involved in like all the discussion with with some of the some of the some of the declassification issue
1: etc mm-hmm.
2: he told me like you know it's it's the absolute weapon and of course I, I state the obvious right it's it's the most powerful weapon you can have but for those powerful weapons, you have to do some sacrifice. And I think the French state was willing to do so at, at, at the time. And this and this claim that they do not know, it's, it's something that they keep on saying, you know. They do not know that military are sick. But in the book and during the investigation, we, we had internal emails, actually, from them, doing like a survey of how many military people would be sick in the next years, you know. Mm-hmm. so they knew and they keep on denying that that they knew at the time. And that's a pattern that's quite usual, I think, for the military state.
0: Another thing that I think the project brings together so well is the human impact and the, the ecological system and seeing that as a whole. And I think that's really a credit to to where we are at in some positive ways in terms of thinking holistically about these things Another of the things that I think is really important about this project is the way that it it works against the idea that this is just a historical issue, right? That the test ended in 1996, and that revisiting it, uncovering its um, lies—I can't think of a better word, so I'll just go with lies—is um, important. But that this is an ongoing health and environmental problem, and so I guess I wanted. You both to speak to that, you know, the the fact that the urgency around this project isn't just about revealing what has happened in the past and some of the lingering effects and legacies, but that there's a real risk, there's a real risk, especially in terms of the structures, the fragile environmental kind of structures that are, that are housing, containing, you know, with more or less success, what is still there um, under, under the surface and then in, in the environment, surrounding environment. Do you
1: know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, of course, and 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 I love that you asked this question. I mean, the the book and the work, I mean, it turned out to have such an important impact because it had you know political implications, on health policy implications, and legal implications for for people right now. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I tend to to say you know going back to this document, for example, where you had a list of children. Uh, under the age of seven who uh, ingested for weeks uh, water contaminated with fission products uh, in 1971. They're in their uh, late 40s, early 50s today, uh, and they are developing cancers. I mean, that particular group, but more broadly, people were exposed as children during the atmospheric tests uh, are coming to an age where at which you, 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 know, you, you do develop cancer. Uh, and you do develop cancers that are recognized under French law as being uh, radiogenic so, uh, and potentially linked to uh, the exposure uh, during this time of testing. Mm-hmm. And for these people, uh, this is another <laughs> big issue, the issue of reparation, compensation and so on. Mm-hmm. But there is a very concrete part of this, which is being recognized as a victim by the French government and receiving financial compensation. And, you know, what we uncover essentially uh, as part of this work was that the pattern of, and you say lie, and you're absolutely right because the, lie have, the lies have continued. Mm-hmm. The pattern of lies and negligence and secrecy uh, still continue to this day. Mm-hmm. And that uh, for a person who would be, you know, uh, be a cancer survivor or a cancer victim in Polynesia who was living at the time of the test and would apply uh, for compensation he would sometime get uh, you know one or two-page letter back from the French government saying you know dear sir dear madam we've reviewed your case yes you were there at the right time and uh, mm-hmm. you may have been exposed to fallouts but you know we have calculated that the impact on you specifically is too low. So we essentially cannot give you any money. And our calculations were done by those great scientific institutions. And they were validated by an independent group of international experts mandated by the International Atomic Energy Agency. And uh, essentially, there's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we show that well, the studies on which those decisions were based underestimated the potential exposures and the dose received by these people. And that not only that, but that uh, idea that all of this had been validated was uh, wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, we also, you know, as part of the project, interviewed one of the people who was part of this study. And he said we didn't validate anything, you know, and I, I kind of fell from my chair at that moment. Wow. This is when we kind of realized that, you know, this was this was really huge and there was a significant impact. And you know, that kind of pushed us to go through the numbers more holistically. And we found that uh essentially pretty much the entire well, at least ninety percent, if not the entire population of Polynesia had been exposed. Possibly to a level, so it would not be possible to rule out that they that they've been po- received those um that today would would give them uh, access to compensation should they develop certain kinds of cancers, and that would mean you know increasing the number of potential victims by you know two orders of magnitudes yeah. increasing the amount of money that the French government would need to pay by two <laughs> orders of magnitude, so you know. Yeah. 700 millions of euros and things like that. So it had, like, really a huge, huge, yeah, a huge ramification for today's debate about how do we uh, provide justice for, for this population and the veterans also.
0: Yeah. Thomas, did you want to add anything?
2: Um, I th- I think w- to to understand fully, like, what we're talking about is, like, so Polynesia is an sea uh, territory of France. It's very it's very far, actually, from Paris. Mm. Um, but what, what, what one does not realize when reading the French press, and re- you have to read the Polynesian press to understand that it's still a day-to-day issue in Polynesia. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it, it's always there, right? Mm-hmm. There's always a case that's been introduced in front of the court. There's always some new development about like the cleaning of some part of the atolls of like, you know, some veterans, et cetera, dying, or some association organizing a rally. So it's it's, it's something that's so rooted in the Polynesian uh, society now, and it has been for years. So when you go there, of course, it's a day-to-day discussion that you can have with people. and And, and this comes also to the fact that it's a small community that's been exposed to radiation, And that in some of the communities we visited, like, for instance, the one in Mangareva, there's a lot of cancer there. Of Mm -hmm. course, it's not our job to assess whether all of those or some of those, all parts, you know, have been provoked by the nuclear testing. What, What I can say as a journalist and what we can say during this investigation is like, again, we come back to the fact of them knowing there was a note by the health ministry in Polynesia saying that those cancers were likely to be caused by the exposure of the nuclear test. And they called, and I quote, there was cluster of cancer on those islands. So, and that's a super important to understand, I think. And when we talk about the victim and Sebastian mentioned, I think it's important also to remember the veterans, because when, again, when you speak to military personnel that were sent to Mowa at the time, you face another kind of situation. In France, it's ve- the, the association for the veterans, is called AVEN, mm-hmm. As- uh, ve- A- Association des Veterans pour les essais Nucleaires, Nuclear Testing Veteran Association. And this association has roughly like 3,000 members, something like that. And it, there's more than hundreds of thousands of military that were sent on Moa in Polynesia in at this time. And they're facing another stuff. It's like the secret for those military is something they still live day to day how can you speak about your, your disease, you know, if you're still, you know, bound to the French military, but by, by this secret, you're not supposed to talk about the, the, the nuclear testing. You cannot, because at the time you, you learned that if you do so, you can face disciplinary issues and you can face administrative charges and even legal charges, you know. So the veterans is a totally different situation. Like they are not so as outspoken as the Polynesians are about that and i think those two, to have those two you know set of people in the same book that of course face different health issues and different issues but it was important i think for me mm-hmm. and i think for sep too to to have it like on the book together those two categories that sometimes you know the french state kind of try to oppose you know one one into another so
0: i was going to ask you both to say more about you know the impact that the book has had you know, the life of this project since since it made its debut, the relationship between the book and the website?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one, one thing I, I want to, uh, you know, briefly go back to as an example is, Thomas was, was very, uh, very modest about this, but, you know, for the French government, you know, said that the tests were clean. And of course that, you know, there was no data whatsoever that could link uh, population exposure to increase a lot of cancers and so on. And you know, all of this is so uncertain and and whatnot. So he, he did found that, you know, uh, internal government uh, document uh, in Polynesia was written by by a French uh, military doctor, actually, mm. uh, you know, linking those and saying there are clusters of cancers. And this was interesting because we had like kind of broad numbers at the end of the project when all of this came together. So, you know, the book is about to come out. We're finishing up the platform. I'm also writing a scientific article, who kind of describes all the you know nitty gritty scientific assumptions, reconstruction data, and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of it starts to come together, and I'm being interviewed by a journalist of, uh, at Science, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the magazine, and he says, "So how many people and how much is this going to cost?" You know, so I'm kind of going back to. <laughs> To my numbers, and 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 was something I never really realized, and um, and this is when you know kind of started seeing the scale of it and, yeah. and the potential. I mean, impact on that, but also the fact that we were going to say that everybody knew, even in Polynesia, people knew internally in the government that in France, the government knew, mm. and so yes, this was about to uh, make some wave, and indeed, I mean, it was it was seismic. I mean, wow. the book came out. Well, the story almost broke a little bit before by accident, but anyway, it broke on a Tuesday. On the Wednesday, they were already question asked uh, to the government, you know, in the French Parliament. Uh, it took two weeks for the French government to kind of try to organize a response. We were, you know, everywhere. Uh, you know, people were asking, you know, uh, we want to know what happens. MPs threatened parliamentary inquiry and so on and so. It was really, I mean, the, the, the wow. political impact was major. And so it kind of started then a political sequence that really is is no kind of has come almost to an end, although we'll see if there is a second part of it. <laughs> but, you know, in June, there were parliamentary questions, a law uh, to expand. Compensation was introduced in parliament. Uh, got voted down by by the presidential uh, majority. A Polynesian delegation was, in, you know, invited to Paris, mm-hmm. the, the office of the prime minister, with the ministry of defense, ministry of health, discussing, you know, you know what happened and what they would get out of this. Uh, Macron decided to go to Polynesia in July of last year. Mm-hmm. Recognized that uh, the tests had never had never been clean. That it's impossible that they were to say that they were clean. You know, falling short of apologizing, yes, although recognizing that you know France had a debt towards Indonesia, but which I think was really a more uh, a legal issue also, mm-hmm. uh, because victims of nuclear testing are compensated under a regime of national solidarity, where France doesn't have to recognize its its uh, responsibility, mm-hmm. and if you do so, that opens another set of legal issues and potential compensation, much broader compensations. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that was kind of the sequence coming through his trip to Polynesia, and then also saying that he was going to open all the archives about the French nuclear testing enterprise in Polynesia. And we learn later, and, you know, Thomas can tell us more also about this. I mean, the, this is like an enormous endeavor that mm-hmm. is started to kind of cataloging and, and checking everything. And, and, um, and, of course, this is kind of a positive outcome to some extent, but that exercise also has limits because the government is going through every box and removing documents out of them right. and deciding that no one will ever have the right to see those. Uh, so, you know, all of this is still in flux. Yeah. And uh, and so we saw Macron's promises being partially addressed just right before the election, the pre, you know presidential mm-hmm. election that just happened. But but to this day, uh, it still has kind of fell short of what he has uh, fully promised uh, in terms of access uh, right. to documents, historical. The, it's also unclear what will be the legal implications and so on. So right, yeah. Just to say that there is there was instant impact and then the long term impact for courts also. Uh we're gonna see over the next, you know, year or couple of years.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Thomas, did you wanna add to that?
2: Yeah, I th- I to come back a bit what you say, like you must be excited to work on a project like that, but what we came to realise and I, I'm sure Sebastian realized that also during the course of the investigation, but was even clearer after we release it is like of course a project like that come with excitement, but also with responsibility. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was big accusation we made at the time, and yeah. we achieved a lot of. You know, I'm very happy with the with the project, and and what we've done, and and, and it's. It doesn't happen a lot of time that you actually change you can change people's life Mm. when you're doing journalism it's not something that happens every time it happens every now and then but it's the project i work on that i think can significantly change the life of like hundreds of persons hopefully so there's a legal challenge that sebastian mentioned you know when we published the book we we actually thought like we can we knew that we won't change everything we knew that probably it will have some impact and it has some great impact but it's also fascinating to see how the um, the system of lie, negligence, and you know that Sebastian described—that was his formula. That that's why I'm I'm dropping the formula now because I know he liked this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he is very resilient. Mm. It's it's something very fascinating. So yeah, and and I think the declassification is is a good example. So one of the outcome of our investigation was to say, look, now we are going to make everything true. Like we're going to take all the boxes, put everything on the table, and then we are going to sort this nuclear stuff one, once and for all. And that was the the the, 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 the talks of the Ministry of Outer Sea Territories, uh-huh. when he went to Polynesia first. He said, look, okay, now you ask for the truth, we're going to give you the truth. And then <laughs> when, when we had a look into the making of, who was going to declassify those documents, you know, which are going to be the filter, you know, because for sure you cannot declassify every document about nuclear testing. It's, and then we came to realize that somehow it, it's not so different from what happened in the past. So mm. the documents are going to be declassified through some kind of military panel experts that all come, come from the military Mm -hmm. all from the energy atomic committee so no independent expert Mm. and then they say look we're going to be so transparent that the polynesian will come to the table and say we want these documents but of course they come to the table once 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 you know every three months basically to have a look at what the other have done and i think that's a good example to prove like there's still a lot of stuff to do. There's still a lot of secret to 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 uncover. And I think we did our part. We opened some doors, but there's a lot more doors to be opened. Mm-hmm. So I think for your listener, there's there's an open, you know, subject at the French archive that's to be <laughs> looked at, you know.
0: Well, there are definitely some listeners who are gonna take you up on that invitation. Sebastian Thomas, like I could talk to you for hours, about this, but I'm not going to do that to you. Um, and I'm just going to thank you so much for this incredible work that, that you've both done and for joining me to, to talk about it, especially for, for English listeners, because I think, you know, and in French studies in North America and the UK and like places where people might not, he is exposed to this history and to this ongoing set of issues who are interested in France and interested in, you know, colonialism and interested in nuclear issues. And so I think it just makes uh, the project even more accessible. And um, I'm going to, as I said earlier, link to the, to the website, which is available in both French and English, um, which is an amazing resource to, to accompany the book. And I'm going to look forward to the English translation of the book that that when it comes out so I hope you'll keep me posted about that.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much.